You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning. Uh, I'm just going to bring you guys up to speed for those of you who were not with us last week. But last week we started a series in the book of Malachi that we're going to hang out in for three weeks. Uh, so this is week two. We started last week. And, um, and in a minute, John's going to come up and he's going to read to us. But I just want to like help kind of set the stage, right, the context for those of you who, again, maybe weren't here last week. Uh, this, this book was written... As it's the last book we have in our Old Testament before Jesus shows up on the scene. And so the sense was like, what a great way to lead into the Christmas season, just to hang out in this last of the prophetic writings before Jesus shows up. And it's dated around 450 B.C., and what that means for the story of Israel is that this is following their period in exile in Babylon. This is following the time under Ezra and Nehemiah where the temple's been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, there's this restored worship happening in the temple. And um, what's that? No? Hey. Okay. Well, I'll wait then. Or should I keep going? You guys can hear me? Okay. If I talk louder, am I good? Is it anything? It's weird? Okay. Well, tell a joke. I don't have any good jokes. Um, Check, check. All right, hopefully that's better. Is that better? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, last week, too, you know, I pointed this out. The way the book is written, it's in this responsive style. And so when John reads, I really want to encourage you to, to listen for who's speaking. At times, it's God speaking to the people, and then it's the people speaking back to God, questioning what he's saying, and then God speaking in response to that, and there's this back and forth style, and so really want to encourage you to like listen for how that's flowing. And before John comes and reads, I just want to do a little like review of last week, just to set the stage. And what we saw last week was in this responsive style, there's somewhat of an indictment and a confrontation happening. And we talked about how really when God does that, it's a call to align to him and his ways and his word and he's always right and his ways are always good and that he's, he's calling us to his ways because he loves us. And there is this, this call from God to his people that through his people, he would be known as great in the earth. That through your lives, through my life, through our lives together collectively as a community, that God and his ways would be seen as good in the world. And the real call that we highlighted last week was this call to wholehearted worship. Because what we heard last week was this sense that the worship in Israel had been compromised and the teaching of the scriptures in Israel had been compromised and God was calling them to return to him with their whole hearts. But all built upon the fact that he loved them. That in knowing the greatness of his love for us, we're actually empowered to worship him wholeheartedly. So that was the general idea of it. We're going to go from there, but John, you can come up, and John's going to read to us. And as John reads, my encouragement to you guys is recognize, I think someone said this during worship this morning, but like God's word is powerful. God's word has the capacity to transform us. And so my encouragement to you, as John reads, we are intentionally not putting it up on the screen. We want you to listen and hear. And my, my encouragement to you is prepare your heart to hear what the Lord is saying and believe and trust that he can actually bring about transformation, good fruit, and change in your life through his word heard in your ears, spoken to your heart. And with no more of that, John, come on up and you can read. Thank you, Caleb. Good morning, Life Tree family. Good. You are here. So we, we, uh, we saw in Malachi chapter 1, it starts off uh, by saying it's a prophecy 
the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And Malachi means messenger or my messenger. So it's a, it's a word that the Lord has given to Malachi. Malachi has, has uh, uh, as Caleb said, has written it down, recorded it, almost as this conversation between the Lord and us. And, and we've had that even within our own community where, where someone has felt they've had the word of the Lord for us and has, has come up front and shared it. And so that is really what Malachi is doing, is he is sharing this word of the Lord. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As we go through uh, Malachi here, middle of chapter 2 to middle of chapter 3, in reading from the NIV, we'll see that that Malachi is broken down into sort of three categories. Um, Just like last week, Caleb talked about uh, compromised uh, worship, compromised offering, and compromised teaching. Again, we're looking at uh, there's a compromise or, a, or what NIV calls a breaking covenant through relationship or divorce, through injustice, and again through finances, through offering. And he says, as for the man who does this by marrying women from a for- who love a foreign god, Whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing to you, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts him with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your God, guard. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The Lord Almighty says, The man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Talking about injustice. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? The Lord Almighty says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Remember, as Caleb said, Malachi is, uh, is writing some 400 years before the New Testament, before the Messiah has come. The next words you will recognize, uh, Handel made famous in his work, the Messiah. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years." So I will come to put you on trial, says the Lord Almighty. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. 
And finally, regard to tithes and offerings and finances. Says the Lord Almighty, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. But you ask, how are we to return? The Lord says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? The Lord Almighty says, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me, bringing the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. Amen. Thanks, John. So again, a lot in there, like last week. Uh, we're, we're covering a lot of territory in this. When I look at this, I'm like, man, we could have spent eight weeks in here, but we're doing three. And uh, but what, what I want us to catch is that in these many aspects of our life that are addressed, there's this overarching theme. And the theme connects back to what we looked at last week. Last week, again, we were talking about wholehearted worship. What I'd say to you, the theme that carries through in this is that wholehearted worship will affect your whole life. That that every part of your life is actually to be affected by a wholehearted devotion to God and to His ways. And so what we have here, right last week, there was this call to bring the best sacrifices they could to the altar the call to actually uphold God's word in the community. But it wasn't enough to just do that. There's then this call to be faithful to their spouses, to bring integrity to the workplace, and to care for the poor. And then also to honor God with their money, right? And in the same way to us here today, it's like this thing that, yes, come into this place on a Sunday and passionately praise God and pray. Come into this space and and sit and hear the word. Yes, good. But also honor God with every facet of our life beyond this. It's It's not just about our Sunday rituals, right? These things that we do, these routines, these rhythms, it's not just that. It's actually that the whole of our life is worship unto God. All these areas of life are what this wholehearted worship of God begins to affect. Are you with me? And, and this is so important to God because He cares for the world around to actually see His ways embodied in a people. This, this idea that we heard last week is repeated again in these texts. This idea that the nations will call you blessed. There is this this witness dynamic that God wants to have happening through His people. This repeated theme throughout Scripture again and again is that God would have a people, a special people, through whom His special ways are seen, and He, in turn, is seen as good. And there's this corporate effect that actually your obedience to God, to Jesus, has for others around you. Like when you look into that passage where it gets into tithing, notice it says that the whole nation is under a curse because they're not bringing the whole tithing. Now, chances are what's going on in there is that some are bringing it in and some are not, right? And yet there's this corporate effect that, that in our following God and His ways, it doesn't just benefit us, it benefits those around us. There's this corporate 
dynamic of blessing and cursing. And, and as we go through this today, what I want you guys to really catch, because there's some hard things that speak into you know, details of life here for sure, I just want to say that as we look at these areas, it's not about doing these things in order to try and please God, right? It's, it's not this, obey this so God will be happy with you. It's actually, we are being called into his way because it's good for us and it's good for the world around us. There's very much this sense in which we as God's people walking out his ways in the world are a part of, if you will, bending the culture, around us, towards heaven. And not in this coercive way, not in a like banging people over the head with the Bible, but in, a, but in an invitational way, in an attractional way, in that your life, as you begin to actually walk out God's ways, there's a beauty that is added to your life. There's a goodness that, that, that radiates out from your life, from your home. And in, and in this way, right, like we are the people who were told to pray, we talked about this last week, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? And as we walk out the culture of heaven in our own lives, in our own homes, we are actually getting to be this agent, this catalyst within the culture around that's seeking to bend the culture toward heaven. In the same way that, you know, we saw last week God's word calling us to align to him in his ways. May our lives call and invite those around us to him in his ways. Right? It's a sense that actually our behavior can lead to other people's beliefs being impacted. I remember having these experiences when I was running my business, and uh, this one supplier that we did business with, he had a few roofing companies that he knew all of us owners of these companies were believers, were Christians, were Jesus people. And he said to me one day, we were having a meal together, and he just said, I don't know what it is about your religion, but it must teach you something about money, because you guys all seem to like have, you know, you pay your bills, you this, like you just, he, he had this experience with these believing roofing company owners that caused him to go, huh, there's something about that thing you guys believe that, that, that's doing something good. I like it. You pay your bills, you know. Or I remember this, this, this one uh, time being on a project and I had this project manager that I was working in relationship with and this was in the season when I had just early on started pastoring here in this lead role and still running my business full-time, and it was crazy. I wouldn't recommend it. And, um, and this, this project manager said to me, he was just like, how do you have so much peace with so much going on? And it led to this breakfast that we got to have, and we, I got to just really, well, here, let me tell you the gospel, you know, and an and ongoing conversation with him since. And my prayer as we look into this and God's ways is that we would, we would be a people whose lives individually as homes and as a community would actually be used of the Lord to display the goodness of His ways. A heavenly culture here in Victoria. That's what we're going after, okay? So we're going to dive into the details. Okay, that's what I would see when we look into this message today. I'm thinking like, okay, wholehearted worship leads to all of life being affected, right? Now we're going to look into the details. And I will say these three areas that John identified, um, they're messages in and of themselves. So we're going to be like blazing through real fast some pretty significant stuff. Um, so buckle up and get ready. Uh, but really these details of life, you know, the first area I would identify as sexuality and marriage. The second area would be society and justice. And the third is stewardship and money. And I find it really interesting just to note that even on that first category of the sexuality and marriage, what it teaches and what it speaks to would really align with what you could say would be, you know, conservative spectrum of the political, you know, spectrum. But when you go into the stuff about society and about justice, it would totally align with like a more traditionally liberal perspective. 
And, and what, what it hits me with is that God's kingdom and his way can't be boxed into these paradigms. He is, he, is, he is his own king, his own ruler, his own way that he calls us to. And when it gets into the giving and the money part, that's really neither. None of us like that. You know, that's, just, that's just kingdom. It's like you, you give. 10% belongs to me, right? Like that, that idea. But this, this whole thing of sexuality and marriage, what was God bothered by, upset by, calling them to, right? What was going on that we hear in the text is that these people, they were, they were divorcing and abandoning and deserting their wives for younger women, is the idea. And not just any younger women, but women who worshipped foreign gods. And I would want to point out in that moment that it wasn't, the issue was not you're marrying foreign women, it's women who worship foreign gods. Because you actually have in the genealogy of Jesus, like someone like Ruth, right, who was a foreigner, but she committed her heart to, the, to, to the Yahweh, to the Lord. So sometimes it can be heard as this racist thing, but it's not that. It's actually about like where their hearts were God had issue with. But more, more importantly, what you hear he had issue with was that they were abandoning and deserting the wives of their youth. In other words, the woman you married when you were young, you know, they're out. And I think it would be safe to say when you read the text that God hates divorce. There's actually, verse 16, if you read in the message explicitly, the way, uh, the way Eugene Peterson translates it is God saying, I hate divorce. And when I say that, I want to I handle that carefully because I recognize that there are people among us who have been through divorce. And what I would say to you is God hates divorce, not you. He hates what it does. He hates, he, hates, he hates the experience of it. He hates what it does to a family. He hates what it does to your life. He hates what it does to a society. And I think I could venture to say if any of you have been through a divorce, you probably hate divorce too. Probably wasn't fun. Wasn't, a, wasn't an easy experience. And the Bible does give reasons for divorce. There are good reasons for divorce. Infidelity. Abuse, neglect, desertion, all those sort of things. Well, why does he hate it? Why does he really not like it? Verse 16 says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, notice how it puts them together, does violence to the one he should protect. There's a violence to it. And that violence is one in this, that it tears apart what God brought together, right? We have this idea in Scripture that when you get married, you actually become one flesh. And through it, you're torn apart. Your family is torn apart. There's this provision, right? The, it does violence to the one you should protect, is what it says. There was this role that the man had, especially in that day and time and in that culture, to provide, to care for. You know, more so than today, there was a real thing that to, to be married was a strong sense of security for these women and, and these men, purely because of their, probably because of their lust, are, are neglecting this commitment and leaving them hanging. And even though we say then, you know, it would have been really felt there's a security, even today, you know, for people, maybe if you're really, really wealthy, you know, you can go through a divorce and your quality of life doesn't really get affected that much. But most people who are going to go through it are going to feel it. You're going to feel the financial burden of it, the strain of it. Not only that, but the family's going to feel it. The kids are going to feel the violence of it, the tearing apart of their family. And God says it. It's like, what does he want? The question's right there in the text. It says, what does God want? Godly offspring is his response. And there is this God design to the way things work that actually we flourish growing up in a home with mom and dad present. There's just a reality to it. It matters. God is gracious and amazing and does healing and does work for those who've gone through it. But, but kids who go through that, there's a degree of pain and trauma that comes with it. 
There's actually stats about, about kids coming out of broken homes more likely to commit crimes. There's social, societal impact. And divorce is, is really, it's contagious in the sense that the more common it becomes, the more likely it is to happen, right? I had a conversation with, with a kid once who was seeing it happen in his own home, and that child said to me, you know, 80% of marriages don't work out anyway. I was just like, wow, that is not true. You know, the stats are around 50%, but there was this, this normalization happening, right? And, and the fact is that of that 50%, actually, it's oftentimes same people, multiple marriages, right? And so any, anyway, without getting into all that, the idea that I want us to understand and to, to catch is that way we actually walk out our sexuality and our commitments and our marriage matters. It has implications for us and for everybody around us. Everybody is affected. And God says right in the text, there's a part where he says, you belong to me in body and in spirit. And it's this call to actually surrender our sexuality to him. Paul makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians 6. When he's calling people to sexual wholeness, he says, your body is the Lord's. Right? Same idea. And here's the thing, guys. When we submit our lives and the details of our lives to him, it's worth it. He loves you. His ways are good. That is what he's calling you to. He's calling you to the way that works best. Do you believe he loves you, right? So when you're, when you're tempted to go astray, it's really like, and you look at God's way and you know that what you're feeling in your heart and drawn to is not his way, you really have to come to terms with, does he love me? Is his way actually good? Does it actually lead to life? I love the, the advice that's given. It's given twice in the text, and it says, be on guard. Don't be unfaithful. And it's because this idea is that adultery begins in the heart. Jesus actually says it, right? That's, that's what Jesus teaches. And so I would just say to you, this is going to get really nitty-gritty here, okay? But if you're dealing with finding yourself stuck in looking at what you know you shouldn't be looking at, get help. Because that starts to lead you into places in your heart and in your life that will not end well. Be mindful when you feel attraction developing for someone that maybe you shouldn't have. Be mindful. Get help. Talk. We are a community that really believes in being honest, being real, being vulnerable, being transparent. And if you got struggle in these areas going on in your life, this is a place where you can actually talk about it. There are people in this room who want to talk to you about it, who want to see your marriage flourish, who want to see you whole. And there is something actually about when we give our whole heart to him in worship, right? It plays out in this area. And your marriage is going to flourish through intentional decisions. I really meant to only spend about five minutes on this portion, but anyways. Uh, you know... But it's, it's there, there's this reality, like, I was reminded of this, actually, I told this to Kathy Archer this morning, but I remember hearing her and Tim at one of their kids' weddings say, you know, they just had this, this thing, like, divorce is not an option that they live by. And Telsey and I have really embraced that as well. And I remember this last year, we've talked about this, Telsey and I were having a hard time connecting with all of the real grief that she was walking through. I remember one morning we just like looked at each other and like, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. We kind of have an option here. We're going to have a crappy marriage or a good marriage. You know, it's really, that's what it comes down to, right? And there's this, this intentionality that's required to keep making decisions to move towards each other. And when you're feeling tempted away into these other things, you got a real like simple option before you. Turn and go the other way toward the person who you committed your life to. And it's not easy, it's not just, you know, this, but it's a process, and it's continually taking steps in those right direction. I was really struck with this quote I heard 
in the, we did the, the Alpha Marriage course here the last seven weeks. It ended last Tuesday. Highly recommend it. Next time you hear it being, you know, publicized here, really try and make your schedule available to dive into it. Super good. But there was a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian from Germany during World War II, and he was supposed to officiate a wedding, but he couldn't because he was in jail. So he wrote a letter, and he sent it. He was in, yeah, won't go into his whole story, but this was the quote. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. And it's this idea that when we actually just commit, we surrender our hearts and our life. You guys can clap. I saw, like, that's okay. It's a good word. Thank you, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for amazing man, pouring over the truth and finding great ways to say it. There's this sense in that when you make that wholehearted commitment, right, it really plays as a great metaphor to what we're talking about in the whole book of Malachi, that when you make the wholehearted commitment to God, there is a love that will follow from that place of wholehearted surrender and commitment that you don't really get to experience until you're all in. In the same way in your marriage, if you're not all in, there's always kind of this, this foot over the fence over here, maybe, I don't know, and it just, it's not good. So moving on. Just submit your sexuality and marriage to God. That's all. Uh, all right, we're going to try to move quick here. Society and justice. Another big area, but... You know, there's a sense you hear in the text that as they saw the wicked prospering, they began to see that as evidence that God was indifferent and didn't care about how we walk out our relationships to the rest of society. It says this, how have, how have we wearied you, God? He says, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Where is the God of justice? So they developed this idea that it really didn't matter. But he comes in and he begins to speak into their lack of integrity in their business dealings and their lack of care for the poor and those in need. And as he comes and he says, I'm going to purify this nation, he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to put on trial these people, perjurers. who actually says sorcerers and adulterers, but we've already spoken a lot about the whole adultery thing. And sorcery, I don't, I don't know how to bring that into our everyday context right now for most of us probably, but I'm sure it matters. But what... Moving on in the list, perjurers. It's those who lie, who bear false witness, who don't conduct themselves with integrity. The next one he's putting on trial, he says, those who defraud laborers of their wages. In other words, they're withholding pay, or it's unfair pay. Like, actually, if you're a business owner, what you pay your employees matters to God. How you conduct yourself is this thing all exists just for you, or do you actually care well for the people he's put in your care? Then it says, the other ones on the list, going on trial before God. Those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. In other words, he cares deeply about the widow, the orphan. And I would say this as well, add to the list, especially for our day, single family homes. Like We have a profound opportunity before us as the church. And I'm really excited about what I hear developing in our men's group. Our guys who have been meeting for breakfast, there's a real stirring of like a group of guys going, how can we serve these single family homes in our city? And if that interests you, that you want to be involved in that in some way, I'm going to say come talk to me or reach out to Keenan. Keenan's helping spearhead that a bit. And lastly, the other people he's putting on trial, it says, those who deprive the foreigner among you of justice. We could put that today to say indifference towards the poor to the homeless, to the immigrants. If we have a sense of indifference towards them and their situation, something's broken. We're not actually walking it out in his ways. Jesus makes so clearly in his teaching that you can't really love him without loving the poor. And it's always been huge on God's heart and on his mind. Whether you look throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament, the theme is there again and again and again. 
Those poor, forgotten, overlooked people, he cares deeply. So I would encourage us, church, look for ways. Look for ways to engage in our society. Maybe you can offer babysitting to somebody who really needs babysitting. Maybe it's, maybe it's groceries. Maybe it's clothes. Maybe it's furniture. Maybe it's an old car that you have. Or a brand new one. That works too. Help around the house. Like what kind of projects do you have? What are you feeling overwhelmed with, right? Job offers. Fair pay. Or even accommodation. I mean, that's a huge thing in Victoria right now. Okay, looking for somewhere to live. It's not cheap to live here. It's not easy to find something. I'm going I'm to say this right now. I know of two people, part of this community, two families looking for places to potentially live with an RV. Okay? And I'm putting that out there publicly without saying who or whatever to say that if you actually think you have a solution for that, please come talk to me. We'll make the connections happen. Like, we can get real here. We can make this practical. We can actually meet needs. Okay? And so if you potentially have space or know somebody who might be open to that, please talk to me. But there's this call from God that we see in this text to submit how we do business and how we relate to the poor and the forgotten. really matters. Submit it to him. That he would be glorified through his church and how we care for the community around us. Oh, man. These are all like so many things, so many big messages. So we're going to go quick. I'm going to try this quick again. But last one, stewardship and money. The problem he's addressing is they failed to bring the whole tithe into the temple. And it's so profound that he says, you're robbing me. Not, he doesn't just say, hey, your generosity is a little weak. Or you could, you could work on that. He says, you're robbing me. You owe this to me. And there's a lot of conversation I've heard in the church over the years about whether tithing is Old Testament or New Testament. Like, do we really have to do that as Christians? Or isn't that just an irrelevant Old Testament law thing? And I, I heard our friend Gloria Schnick say this recently. She said, if you want to claim that tithing is Old Testament, not New Testament, then you can't have Psalm 23 or Psalm 91 either. And I was like, whew. You know, like, yeah, that's good. Here, here's, here's what's clear. The New Testament, in all these various things, is always just calling for more. Or you want to talk on areas you know, of lust or how you feel in your heart towards your brother, right? And in the same way, we, we can translate that over to this issue. It's like, you know, 10% is a starting ground. Century level, following him. Jesus actually affirms tithing as a good practice in the midst of rebuking the Pharisees. You know, he, he makes this statement. He says, you tithe even on your smallest little garden herbs, those little plants that you have out in your garden. You even take 10% of those and bring them in, but you neglect the more important things of justice, right? But it's interesting. He affirms that you should still be doing this, but not to the neglect of these greater, more important things, right? Here's what I would say on the issue of tithing for us. We follow the Jesus who gave it all, who gave his whole life, and 10% is entry level in following him. And I say this to you, to us, to invite you into a practice that's actually for your good. There's actually a blessing that's promised, right? Like this is one of the only places in Scripture where God says, test me in this. Watch what I will do if you, if you actually do this. I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven are the words. Like, wow, right? And there's going to be this abundance and this blessing. The nations will call you blessed and say this is a delightful land. 
And Becky said it to us last week when she was speaking into giving and tithing, something along the lines of, never heard any stories of people who committed to giving and came away from it being like, oh my gosh, I don't have enough as a result of all this, this giving. There's actually story after story of people who experience an abundance and a faithfulness. And I know Telsey and I can testify to this. You know, we've, we've made a practice our whole marriage of giving 10% to a church that we are connected to and committed to. And then other things beyond that. It's acting as an entry-level thing. And there is questions around this, right? Like, well, does that 10% belong to your local church or can I give it anywhere? And there, there's the scripture here that talks about bringing the tithe into the storehouse, okay? It's like there's this actual place in the temple that was devoted for them to bring their tithes to that was to help feed the priests and, and make the temple happen. And what I would say to you this is that even with that, I wouldn't make that there's an explicit case to be made in scripture that it must go to your local church, but I do believe it's supposed to go to whatever that storehouse is, whatever that place in the temple is. And for me and for Telsey, the local church has seemed like an obvious good example of what that is in modern day. And that's where we've given it. Because we really believe that the local church is a vehicle through which God wants to actually touch cities. Okay? So then you have to, yeah, you're going to have to pray. You're going to have to figure out what's defined as a church there's a lot of, you know, flexibility around that possibly in your mind. I'm leaving that between you and the Lord to pray about. But what I am wanting to make loud and clear to us here today is that giving 10% is baseline following Jesus. That's not to be a condemning thing or a, or a like, you should feel guilty if you aren't. It's like, no, work towards it. Do what you can to aim towards it. There's a lot of things in Scripture that we're called to that I don't do perfectly and that we are asking God for grace for and we're moving towards. But what I do want to be clear is that when we actually engage with it and we do it, it's for our good. And there's actually a corporate blessing that's released for those around us. There's a visible blessing that comes with it. The nations will call you blessed. So we submit even our money to God. It's all his anyway. That's why we have the word stewardship over this part. Right? It's all his. And, and he calls us to steward all of it well for his good. He cares about you eating. He cares about you paying your rent. He cares about, you know, those things. They matter, okay? But there's this sense in which this portion belongs to the work of the gospel in the city, in the nations. As we land here, I want to just bring about like this, the verses that really were capturing me as we looked over this in the weeks to come was this portion that actually is at the beginning of the whole tithing section. And I think it's here because what we do with our money is actually one of the clearest indicators of what we value, where our hearts are. You know, this, this call to wholehearted worship is clearly put on display through how we manage our money which also plays into all that stuff around the other issues we spoke about. But there's this call to return to him. Here's how it goes. Verse 6, chapter 3, through to uh, some of verse 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. It opens up with this statement from God saying, I do not change. Then it goes on and it says after that, right, so you are not destroyed. You people have continued to turn away from me time and time again. Then there's this invitation, but return to me. And I will return to you. Why are we not destroyed despite the fact that we continue to deviate from God's way? Because he's faithful. Because he's kind. Because he's patient. Because he's gracious. Because he does not change. Notice he doesn't say, you know, because some of you have been faithful, you've not been destroyed. Because I don't change. Because God doesn't change. 
And there stands before us this constant invitation, return to me. Return to me. I will return to you. It's the cross, you guys. It's the, go- it's the gospel. We're going to receive communion here in a minute. And actually, if somebody wants to help and flower, if you're in here, if you want to do some keys, that would be awesome. Um, so as we think on this idea, right, wholehearted worship affects our whole life in the details we looked at. Let us not fall under the weight of it in, in, in the sense that it crushes us. But know that he's actually inviting us to return for our good. And he's committed to returning to us. It's interesting to me, in the same way that we're not destroyed because of his faithfulness, not our own, right? Think of Jesus. Jesus was destroyed. Jesus was destroyed for our unfaithfulness. That's what the cross is. That's what the message is. So God's standing there saying, hey, listen, I am so faithful to you. I'm committed to your good. I want to see you make this. I want to see you succeed in this. And he's able to offer us this open invitation of returning to him and repentance and changing our ways because someone was destroyed for our unfaithfulness. That is what the cross is, that Jesus actually took on himself the consequence, the punishment for our sin, for our failure, so that we don't have to live under the crushing weight of the law, but receive grace and mercy and this, this, this extension of forgiveness, this invitation to the table, as Telsey told us, to exchange. And he, like, he forever stands waiting with open arms with this unending resource of grace that is deep and profound. And that, that, that grace is one, yes, to say, hey, I forgive you but also then to actually give us the strength to walk out in his ways. Our heart is to be a people whose lives and our our life together as a community, like we said, we're bending the culture back toward heaven. These things matter not because we're just out there trying to do good and please God and earn some badges and some brownie points with him, but actually make a difference in the culture and the world around us that desperately needs heaven, its ways. So I want to invite you guys to to come forward. Two couples are going to help serve serve the bread and the cup to us today. And you guys can stand. And what we do here at Life Tree, if you've never been here before, is we actually come forward to the table to to receive the elements. Then I invite you to return to your seats with it. And we're going to pray together and we're going to all receive together. So Feel free to make your way forward, and Lara's going to continue to play for us as we get the elements. After we receive communion together, I want to encourage you that if there's anything that's gone on today that you've heard that's caused you to be like, I need to speak about this. I need to get this out in the open. I need to get this off my chest, so to speak. And there's someone here who you trust, who you feel you can share with. Maybe you can move your seat as you go back and sit close to them. But the reason I say this is because I want to encourage you to actually talk openly, ask for prayer this morning if you need prayer. So like I said, we're going we're gonna to all receive together corporately, but I really want to encourage you that if you need prayer for anything this morning, that as we, we conclude, as we come to a close, that you would actually approach someone who you trust to say, hey, can you pray with me about this thing, okay? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came and that he actually clothed himself in flesh, that we might know you more, that we might know you better, that he gave his body for us. One, to know you, but also to receive in his body 
the consequence for our unfaithfulness. We thank you, Jesus, that you were destroyed so that we wouldn't need to be. I say, Jesus' body given for you, take and eat. Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed. You tell us in your own words that it is the blood of a new covenant. It's an unending, unbreaking covenant which you, in which you have committed yourself to us. You've committed yourself to forgive us of our sins when we do wrong against you and against others. You've committed yourself to stand with arms wide open for us to return to you. You promise that you'll return to us. When we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And we receive with gratefulness this morning, once again, the forgiveness of our sins, the complete remission and cleansing from it. Lord, as we take this cup, I ask that you'd make that real to our hearts and to our minds. Jesus' blood shed for you. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, as we go on from here today, I ask that you would speak to us. Make real to us what Jesus has done and accomplished. Make clear to us where you are, you're pointing out where we've gone astray and you're calling us to return to you. Or that we might be a people that that really do display the culture of heaven here in the city of Victoria for the good of the city, for the good of our neighbors, for the good of our own families and all those around us in Jesus' name. Amen. And encourage you if you need to pray with somebody, please, please, please. Make sure to connect. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Life Tree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.